Hello, and welcome to Deal Lab, a corporate development and M&A podcast by Medaxo, where we examine the methods, theories, and stories behind the deal. In this episode, we welcome back Tom Vandaloo as he covers incorporating value creation into early due diligence planning to prevent misevaluation and missed opportunities. Tom is a former partner at PwC and has over 30 years of consulting experience in business integration and separation, cost optimization, business performance improvement, procurement and strategic sourcing, and supplies chain services. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. Um, like to start off, if you wouldn't mind giving a quick introduction about yourself and a little bit of your background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sean. And it's my pleasure being here. So um, my name is Tom Vandaloo. I'm a, um, a former partner uh, from PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, retired uh, just back midway through last year after 30 years in management consulting and about 15 in the M&A space. Um, I'm still active in the space, um, still doing some work with some of my former colleagues at PwC and uh, on, on my own as well. Um, and in addition to that, I've got a couple of side gigs going uh, in the financial services sector um, uh, on uh, credit union boards. Excellent. Well, how's, how's the transition going into retirement? Yeah, I would, I would definitely call it semi-retirement as opposed to retirement. My uh, my daughter jokes that I have uh, more email addresses and and more calendars to manage now than I did when I was working full time. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's a matter of sort of squeezing in the work that I really like doing and that I want to do in between the the stuff that's uh, non work related. So uh, I'm I'm very much enjoying it. Thanks for thanks for asking. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. I I my my father was a former uh, accountant. Um, still accountant, and his retirement plan was to continue working. So he <laughs> sold off his business, and, and uh, it's funny, you know, talking to people and consulting, and it just seems like the, the work never stops, and maybe a little bit better in the golf game, but not so much. Um, but you picked an interesting time to, to kind of retire, um, you know, right in, you know, at the beginning of, you know, 2020, um, you know, we obviously move into COVID, and the world kind of drastically changes. Um, you know, when you think of, you know, COVID practices or things that have developed uh, through, uh, you know, working from home, um, you know, what, what type of things do you think after all this change has happened uh, is really here to stay um, in this post-COVID world when we kind of get back into, um, you know, the quote-unquote normalcy? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great question, Sean. I think number one, um, you know, the, the speed of deal making has increased and I don't think that's going to change, right? Like I think a lot of people have figured out that they can do things virtually more efficiently than they could do, you know, in real life before. Um, whether that's, you know, not having to travel halfway around the world for meetings or conferences or whatnot, um, or perhaps even kind of conducting more data-based diligence as opposed to on-site diligence. So that speed factor is not going to go away and all of the positives that people have learned and gained over the last year are going to be incorporated into their deal making going forward. Um, I think it's not really a practice, but it's more a, a trend, which is, you know, there's going to be higher valuations for premium assets. Um, and those are mostly digital assets, right? Because one thing that most uh, businesses have learned is that they need to have digital channels for deliveries of their products or services, um, or they're not going to survive in the future world, let alone the last 12 months. Um, and I think that, you know, kind of a, a, a corresponding trend to that is especially, um, you know, in non-tech businesses, the acquisition and integration of technology into their sort of traditional business models uh, is accelerated by the pandemic, but it's not going to stop once the pandemic uh, goes back down again and we return to a more normal world. Gotcha. So when you mentioned speed, you know, do you think 
you know, the speed is Im- improving on deals because they're doing going through their diligence faster and understanding, you know, because of technology that things are getting faster? Or is it just the sheer fact that they don't have to travel to sites, they don't have to visit in front of people? Like, can you tell me a little bit more when you talk about speed of deals, what you mean by that? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the technology aspects that you just mentioned are here to stay, right? Like the ability to, to do da- diligence and data and analytics and, and even before that, do your sort of targeting and, and, and sector analysis, um, you know, without actually having to physically travel around the world to get to do it. I would say, however, on the other hand, that most deal makers are going to be a lot more comfortable and want to get back to a world where there is more in-person work, especially when it gets into the latter stages of diligence, right? Like they're going to want to tour plants and meet exactly executives and, uh, you know, you know, see inventory or, or see manufacturing practices or whatever it's going to be. So while the speed of maybe getting to the, that latter stages of the deal is going to be a lot faster, I think the you know, the, the physical aspects of it are still are going to come back, right? They're, they're, we're not going to be able to do that fully virtually the way we have been doing the last little while because people are just going to want to get that touch and feel back into the process again. Do, do you think there's a way to replace that at all digitally? That you still have to really get on site, shake hands, press flesh, say hello to people, you know, do that in-person inspection? Yeah, for some things, no, right? Like um, before I had retired from PwC, we were starting to help clients do some virtual operational due diligence. And so what we would do is we would give um, the target people tablets um, or uh, sometimes even drones or things like that and get them to actually conduct the on-site diligence and show the people on the other end of the line what they wanted to see, machinery processes, you know, work practices, whatever it might be. And so those can still happen. And then especially when there's, you know, significant distances involved. I think those are good practices that, you know, the deal makers can continue to use. Um, I still think, however, that just you, it's just human nature that when it comes to things like assessing management teams or assessing cultures, um, they're going to want to do that in a, a face-to-face setting when they have to, um, you know, and it'll be in the latter stages of a deal, I think, but when they have to, they're going to want to do that in, in a face-to-face setting because it still just doesn't quite translate through the screen the way that it does when you're, you know, physically in a room with a bunch of people and spending time with them, building rapport and understanding them. Yeah. And I think you touched on something um, interesting there. When you mentioned culture, um, mm-hmm. often, you know, when you're integrating, um, different companies, obviously overseas or different cultures, cultures, even, you know, nationally, um, what are the, the, in your opinion, you know, what are the biggest mistakes that acquirers make, um, regarding culture? Yeah, you know, and, and it's one that I've seen over and over. And frankly, uh, it was a source of great frustration to me when dealing with clients, um, uh, around culture. And, and that's this, I think companies understand, or at least they, they believe that they understand the importance of uh, integrating cultures, but they don't take the steps necessary to actually analyze those cultures. And there's some simple tools that you can deploy and some simple analysis that you can do with respect to a target to figure out how they make decisions, what they really value, how collaborative they really are, what kind of you know authority structure that they employ. And I think as importantly, how different all those factors are from the way that you run your company today. And if you have that data in hand, then you can make kind of one or two decisions, which is, okay, if my company's culture is the one that I want to dominate, 
dominate, uh, you know, in the, the sort of post-integration world, I've got to change roadmap now. I know exactly what behaviors and practices and values are different from mine, and I can figure out a way to map those back to where I want them to be and build and implement a change management plan to get there. If, on the other hand, I want the resulting culture of the organization to be kind of a best of both or, or a blended culture, then again, I understand what the differences are between where I am today, where the other company is today, where I want both of us to end up at the end of this journey. And I can build that admittedly more complicated, but still, you know, well thought through change management plan to get there. And I think without that, you're kind of shooting in the dark, right? You're just thinking about, okay, general communications, and I need to talk to them about values and so on and so forth. But if you don't understand what the gaps and the differences are between the two companies, and between where you are now and what your endpoint is, then you really don't have much of a hope of getting there except by by fluke. Gotcha. And I, I know, you know, in, in relation to culture, right, I think people want to make sure that, you know, that culture will continue depending on which side you want to dominate more, which culture you want to preserve. Um, you know, how do you ensure, other than kind of that data analysis you mentioned a little bit, uh, how do you ensure that you can have a smooth integration and retain your top talent um, when when that culture is kind of combined? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a really important uh, um, step to take the one I just described, which is kind of analyzing those gaps and differences. But, you know, the, obviously the analysis is not enough, right? You have to actually figure out what is it that's making their culture work for them? Um, how is that different from your own company? And what do you want to do with that? And again, you know, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't have a change management and communications plan that's specifically oriented towards that change journey, if it's just kind of generic and, you know, we'll do town halls and we'll send out emails and publish a newsletter and so on and so forth, then you don't have much of a, a hope of moving the combined culture of the organization to where you want it to be. And, and I think maybe I we sort of skip the step there or, or let it uh, kind of slide by, but you need to understand what that end state is too, right? You need to understand what what of the, the two cultures that you want to integrate do you actually value and you want to retain? What is it that you want to move away from or, you know, erase entirely? And then how does your change plan align against those different objectives? How do you move towards those retains? How do you move away from those, those you know, uh, um, things that you want to remove, uh, incent people, get the right behaviors out of people and, and the right values out of people based on that change plan. Gotcha. And, you know, it's, it's as a, as a salesperson, um, mm. I always think of, uh, you know, my losses, right. Those are the things that stick with you the most. Those are the things that, um, you know, keep you up at night. You know, I, I think a lot less about the wins. Um, and I think about the ones that you lost, the one that got away, um, you know, in, in your career, um, you know, what, what type of horror stories or losses, you know, through, through the, the viewpoint of, of culture um, really stick with you? You know, what are those things that you, um, you know, might keep you awake at night still, even in retirement? Um, any of those stories or any of those things that kind of still bother you? Yeah. You know, I, I, there's so many examples and I think they all kind of stem from a, a, an overabundance of confidence around, you know, your ability to communicate and, and talk about culture. But, you know, one from very, very early in my career kind of sticks with me. And I was working with a, um, a consumer products company and working with the CEO, we were talking about culture. And he said, look, this, this is the problem I've got. I've got a, a culture of the company that I'm coming from that's very analysis focused, right? They want to analyze everything and get all the numbers on a spreadsheet and scenario plan and do it seven ways to Sunday before they make a, a decision. The problem there being that 
you know, sometimes you need to make fast decisions. And if you don't make any decision, it's worse than making no decision at all. And I'm trying to combine that with a culture of a company whose decision-making process is, you know, grab a, grab a gun and start shooting and see what happens. And you might hit something if you're lucky, right? And then later on, figure out maybe if you have time to come back to it, what worked and what didn't. And I have to put those two things together and come up with the best of both worlds. And I think, you know, it was a long and arduous journey, probably the course of three years. And frankly, a lot of turnover of a lot of people uh, in order to be able to affect that culture change. But at the end of the day, he was able to get to a place where he'd kind of married the two of those, you know, best practices around analysis and, and you know, a bias for action. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure I would say it's a regret, but at the end of the day, there was a, a, a lot of uh, sort of... Um, uh, you know, bodies left along the side of the road, unfortunately, in, in order to get there. And part of that stems, I think, from being able to communicate about what that culture change needs to be, right? And I think in that case, that CEO and I had a very private discussion about what that you know challenge was and what the journey needed to look like. But I'm not sure that that discussion ever got openly had with a lot of other people in the organization so they could understand the journey that they were on um, and maybe understand whether or not they actually fit with where that company was going. Gotcha. Um, and I know, you know, prior to us getting into this, we were talking about value creation and deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, when we talk about deals falling apart or failing, um, you know, why do so many deals, in your opinion, fail to live up to their projected value on paper? Yeah, you know, that that's something that basically every client that I ever talked to in a pitch meeting kind of asked me. And I think, you know, number one, it's um, in part, and it's only in part, uh, a failure of due diligence. And it's not the execution. There's lots of good teams out there who can, you know, grab the numbers and, and you know, execute the, the sort of data analysis that needs to get done. But I think... In, in some cases, increasingly less, but it's still pretty prevalent, that due diligence is focused on box checking, right? There's a, there's a process that's set out for the board or the investment committee, you know, and they want to know the answers to these 20 things about tax and these 15 things about financials and those 20 things about HR and IT and so on and so forth. And so the due diligence teams fan out and they gather all that data and they answer all those questions and they, for lack of a better term, check all those boxes. But these days, you know, in order to be successful at winning a deal, let alone actually kind of executing on it and delivering the value from it, I think you need to take a step back. And instead of talking about box checking and process, you need to talk about value creation levers. And what is it that you as a company are bringing to this transaction in terms of ways to create value out of the transaction that anyone else involved is not? Right? And if you focus your due diligence efforts around those hypotheses and gathering the data that you need to either prove or disprove those hypotheses, then when you get to making a decision about going forward with the deal, you're going to be making it on a much more robust basis than just, I've checked all these boxes on a list. And secondarily, when it comes to you know pricing and valuation, which we can talk about a bit later, you're going to have a way more down-to-earth and believable point of view on what you can actually do in value creation and therefore you know what the valuation and the pricing of the deal needs to look like. Gotcha. So it sounds, from, from your perspective, it sounds like having a plan is great and going through and having due diligence, but being able to pivot along the way is also very important. Yeah. And it's, I would say that the pivot point, you know, the most important pivot point is right at the beginning. What are we, like I said, what are we bringing to this deal that no one else is, you know, and it's fine and dandy to say, you know, these are the IT systems and they're this old and they, you know, mesh with ours and so on and so forth. But if 
you're going to just replace all that technology or, or if you're going to embark on a big technology enabled transformation of the business, then none of that really matters. What really matters is, you know, do you have the technology base in order to affect that transformation? And is that other organization's, you know, business model adaptable to that technology plan that you have or vice versa? So you need to pivot, I would say very early on and think about it from that perspective and then focus your diligence efforts around, you know, proving or disproving that, that idea that you might have. And, and Sean, before, you know, I, I kind of finished answering that question. I want to come back to the one before, which is, you know, one of the other reasons that deals don't live up to their projected values, in my opinion, is human nature, right? Because you've got a lot of people who've been working very hard, long hours, sometimes for months or even longer on identifying targets and conducting diligence and then going into the, you know, detailed negotiations. And I'm sure, anybody who's listening can think to themselves back to a time when it was hard to stand back and go, okay, what's the real objective point of view here? Is this a good deal? Does it actually align with our strategy? Can we create value out of this? Or are we just telling ourselves what we want to hear because we've got so much sunk cost into this right now that it's going to be too painful to walk away, even though it might be the right decision? Yeah. And how do you overcome that? Right. Obviously, you know, human nature is something that um, it's hard to put into a system or a platform or, or onto paper. Um, but you know, how do you, you know, put your ego aside and make those decisions, um, you know, based off of data, how do you kind of eliminate that? I guess would be a more proper question. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that accountability falls back to people who aren't on the deal team themselves. So your executive leadership team or your board or your investment committee or whatever kind of governance, um, you know, is around the deal process. And, you know, those individuals, that person, whoever it is, they need to understand that part of their responsibility is to kind of wear the black hat and, and be critical of what's being presented to them. And, and I think this is as important as that role is understanding that that role doesn't start, you know, when the due diligence is complete and the, and the final report is, but it starts way, way back around, are we targeting the right companies? You know, are we focusing in the right sectors? Do we have a good understanding of our inorganic growth strategy so that our corporate development teams are making good decisions up front around what to pursue and what not to pursue? Um, I think, you know, an early intervention, either on behalf of the corporate development team, if they understand the, the strategy and the criteria well enough, or on behalf of the board or whatever governance group sits on top of it, to kill bad deals or to kill deals that don't have, you know, good alignment is the way to make sure that you're spending your effort on the right things. And when you get to those latter stages of the deal, you're already convinced of the fact that it's a good deal. And now all you're doing is kind of putting the finishing touches on it. Yeah. So did you find, you know, throughout your career, did you find that you would need to have either a go-to person or someone on your side that would be kind of your, your black hat, so to speak, as you mentioned, someone who would just, you know, they wouldn't, they would, if everyone agreed, you need to have one person that would disagree just for the sake of argument, or did it just kind of happen, you know, organically where someone would raise their hand and say, you know, if, if 10 out of 10 are all in agreement here, maybe someone should speak poorly and say what happens on the negative side. Yeah. You know, I've been in situations where it's been a designated individual, right. And, um, and either just by dint of their role on the company, or maybe it's something that rotates around, but, um, having a, a a designated skeptic, you know, in, in a governance role, uh, I think is a useful tool to, to have, um, because 
then you know that person and and the rest of the people surrounding them understand what their role is and understand what their objective is and they're you know it, it helps to dissipate any hard feelings that might uh, might crop up because you know so and so is is you know shouting down this deal when everyone else thinks it's a great deal to move forward with and i think you know not to be too self-serving here but you know engaging third parties like you know consultants um to help conduct the due diligence and then listening to what they actually are telling you, uh, you know, as a result of their reports is a pretty important factor as well, because, you know, as a consultant, when I was doing due diligence on behalf of my clients, my job was to give them the unvarnished truth of what we saw. Um, and, you know, we did, uh, as an example, we were doing a synergy due diligence on a, a financial services company down in the U S uh, and, um, that company had a great looking synergy plan and great looking synergy results when you looked at you know the data that was being provided in the data room and so on and so forth. But as we dug into it more and more, we couldn't see any of those results actually materializing on the bottom line of the company. And you know, without going through the entire story, ultimately we advised our client that those synergies weren't in fact there. Uh, they weren't being realized. They couldn't be realized in the future. And the premium that was being asked for in the valuation wasn't worth it. And our client walked away from a multi-billion dollar deal and thanked us for it. Uh, because otherwise they would have spent a lot of money on a hope and a prayer. And then a few years later found out that, uh, you know, they weren't going to get what they actually had bargained for. Yeah. Has, has it worked? Has it worked the other way where you've told someone not to do a deal and they've gone ahead anyway? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's one of the, uh, uh, the sort of, uh, crosses that you have to bear when you're a consultant is you give advice to your company, your clients, you know, the best advice you can give, but it's really up to them to listen or not. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a deal that we um, were working on just before the pandemic uh, last year. It was in the food service industry. Uh, that client was looking at one of their rivals, you know, it was a regional business and they were serving restaurants and, and so forth. Um, and uh, I remember their finance team came in and did a presentation that said the best case scenario that they could come up with was pretty close to break even after five years if everything went right. And it seemed to me pretty obvious at the time that given that was the best case scenario, that this was a deal that should go nowhere. But their management team was just so invested in it and had, you know, quote, strategic reasons for doing the deal beyond what you could see on the, the P&L projections uh, that they went forward and did it anyway. Um, and I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, well, the pandemic got in the way of any real value creation anyways, but even in the long term, they're going to regret the deal that they made there and the price that they paid for it because, um, it just didn't make sense. Yes. Sometimes you can lead the horse to water, right? I, well, yeah. And as a consultant, you can only lead the horse to water. You can never, <laughs> ever make them drink no matter how hard you try. But, um, you know, still that's, that's our role, right? To, to show them the unvarnished truth of, of the deal that they're looking at. Yeah. I, I know it's a, a little bit outside of your purview and, and what you've kind of done in your career, but you know, when you're talking about, you know, your, your prospects, working with your customers and helping them, um, you know, manage their pipeline and take a look at their pipeline. You know, what's the common mistakes that you see um, with any of your clients or, or, or customers um, when they're trying to manage their pipeline and their targets uh, that they're looking to acquire? Yeah. You know, so number one is, I think what I mentioned before, which is not killing stuff off early enough. Um, but it, it, that really is a, a symptom of perhaps a larger problem, which is making sure that 
you know, the, the corporate development teams that are doing the targeting and focusing and then ultimately the pipeline management have an incredibly good feel for what the inorganic growth strategy of the company is. And the reason I say that is because I've seen lots of opportunistic deals, uh, you know, that come across the table because someone's selling or divesting or, uh, you know, a, a business unit or carving something off or whatever it might be. And people get excited about that which in some cases is okay. But in a lot of cases, if you really look at it, that particular deal doesn't really align with, you know, the strategic plan or the, the inorganic strategic growth plan of the company. And if it doesn't align with your strategic plan, then you really run the risk of spending a lot of time and energy on something that ultimately, you know, might be okay, probably won't be great. You know, whereas you could be spending your much more limited time and energy on deals that actually make a lot more sense. Um, so I think, you know, having a clear view of that strategy, being able to assess and use criteria to assess incoming opportunities against that strategy is the number one thing to help manage your pipeline a lot more uh, efficiently. Um, and then, you know, you throw in on top of that what I was talking about earlier, where you have, you know, professional skeptics and trying to kill off bad deals early and only focusing on, you know, the really high value creation and, and high probability and high strategic alignment type of deals. Um, companies that pursue that type of strategy, statistically, and, you know, PwC studies have shown, have a much, much better track record of creating value and having successful deals than those who go at it somewhat opportunistically or without a clear plan. Gotcha. And, and when, from a sales perspective, you know, when I sit down with my team and inspect their pipeline uh, and their opportunities, we always try to have at least a three to four X pipeline coverage. Um, that's your goal. You know, in your opinion, um, you know, what, what type of pipeline, obviously you want to eliminate some targets early, but what type of pipeline coverage, if you're backing into your, your, your growth, you know, is it, 3x, 10x, 5x, like what type of coverage does a, uh, uh, a company typically need um, as they're you know, building out their pipeline? Yeah, I, I, I've used the, the 3x kind of rule of thumb myself, Sean, um, and, and I think it's a good one. I, I think I would apply it by stage. So, um, you know, from my own experience, you know, if I've got clients that I'm doing kind of detailed proposals to, um, then I would like to have sort of three of those for every one I think I'm going to land. But if I push it back through the pipeline to kind of earlier stages, then I want to have sort of, you know, three relationship building or, you know, analysis types of exercises going on for every one of those things that I think is going to turn into a proposal. Because realistically, two out of three of them probably won't either. Someone else will come in and scoop it or the the client will decide that they don't want to move forward or some other you know set of circumstances will come up to blow it up. Um, and then if I go even further back in the pipeline, I think that 3x rule is even you know still useful, which is to say, you know what types of companies should I be looking at in order to assess whether or not I bring them into the pipeline? And you know if I use a three a number of three there, then that's a useful one as well. Of course, there's you know significantly less effort associated with the early pipeline, you know do they belong here at all type of analysis versus the should I start building a relationship and analyzing and then ultimately you know a lot of effort around the okay I'm going to actually build a proposal and try and move this one forward so you know on a on a relative basis you can see how that all evens out but if you use that sort of you know 3 by 3 by 3 as you work your way back through the pipeline that's been a rule of thumb I've used in my career perfect and you know thinking about the future right i, I think you know I, a lot of folks are eager to um, you know return to the office um, you know get out of this you know covid world that we're in currently um, you know, think about the future, uh, you know, 
as of recently, our, our Fed chair came here in the States, um, was on 60 Minutes this week, and he was talking about hiring is going to bounce back and there's going to be some massive growth here uh, in our economy um, in two, three quarters. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on really a return to large inorganic growth or really M&A activity as a whole um, coming down here in you know, Q3 or Q2, Q3 and Q4 uh, as we round out 2021? Yeah, you know, I, I I have heard those types of projections, um, and uh, you know, I think that the, the U.S. is, example, for example, predicting six percent growth in the back half of the year, which is enormous, um, relatively speaking. I think that type of inorganic growth um, is going to put a lot of pressure on companies. Um, you know, there's going to be headwinds around skilled resources. I mean, if you think back, it wasn't that long ago when, um, especially in the tech sector and and tech job sector, there was already, uh, I think, like a negative 30% vacancy rate for those types of resources. Um, Those tech resources have been very, very busy the last 12 months, and they're not going to be any less busy once things start to grow again either. So, um, you know, technological upskilling of of staff is basically the only contingency plan that a lot of companies are going to have in order to be able to get those skills in-house because hiring them is going to be either impossible or prohibitively expensive. And I think the other thing that might present a bit of a headwind to some of the inorganic growth that companies are looking at, depending on what sector they're in, is, you know, what kind of shape are their supply chains in um, after a year of disruption? And who knows exactly what it's going to look like going forward in terms of, you know, what's going to happen, have to happen to, you know, moving goods across national boundaries and and uh, and so on and so forth. So there are still some headwinds there on the inorganic growth side, or rather on the organic growth side. Um, on the inorganic side, um, not much has changed from where it was a year ago in that there's still a lot of money on the sidelines. Interest rates are still incredibly low. Borrowing is, you know, essentially free for a lot of companies out there and valuations are very high. And so, you know, there's going to be high competition for deals. We've already seen it in, in the back half of 20, the, the volume and the valuations have started to spike up again. And uh, all the predictions are that that's going to continue through 21 and maybe even into 22 as well. So uh, I think companies need to be prepared from an inorganic standpoint, you know, to be looking at uh, um, narrowing their focus, going after the deals that they've got a high probability of being able to actually close because they've got a really convincing value creation hypothesis. Um, and, you know, competing for deals just on price, unless you've got completely endless pockets is going to be an incredibly difficult game to play because there are a lot of deep pockets out there. Yeah. So it sounds like from, um, you know, one of your earlier thoughts, it sounds like you need to do more with less. You know, I've got friends and other consulting firms that um, they're telling me they're actually turning away work because they don't have enough bodies to put behind it. Do you, do you feel that you know that is going to continue, or do you think it's going to be more forcing the hand of of companies to essentially do more with less um, and, and use the resources they have, and you know, perhaps find some technology to to kind of push things forward? I, I think it is. Yeah, it's definitely a do more with less, you know, with a, a bit of a side proviso of, you know, digitize whatever you can, especially, you know, the things that aren't the highest sort of value adds in in whatever value proposition you're bringing to either your market or to your M&A process. And so, you know, the, the, the days of being able to, you know, operate clunky manual processes in order to, you know, 
operate your core business are rapidly going away. And if you haven't already started digitizing, you know, significant portions of that business, then you're well behind the curve because you are going to have to do more with less in terms of actual human resources, you know, digital resources, uh, you know, with the exception of the fact that they cost a little bit of money to implement are practically speaking done right, you know, scalable. Uh, and so therefore, the more that you can invest um, and the more that you can digitize, uh, you know, parts of your processes, the better you're able you're going to be to deal with those resource constraints. Gotcha. Tom, I, 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 the conversation was great today. Thank you so much for carving out the time. Um, you know, we really appreciate you sitting down and going through this. Uh, is there anything else that you want to mention or anything else that uh, you want to cover today? You know, one other thing, one other trend, uh, Sean, that might be of interest to, um, you know, your listeners and, and your clients is that um, uh, environment, sustainability and governance is starting to become a more important part of deal making these days. Uh, and it's even starting to impact valuations. Um, so, you know, there are firms out there that, frankly speaking, have a, and, and I'll paraphrase here, but it's a, a buy cheap and dirty and sell expensive and clean strategy. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're out there looking for targets that don't have a great ESG, uh, you know, platform or record. And, you know, reducing the valuations that they're putting on those companies precisely for that because the 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 public and the consumer public is looking for companies and 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 products and services that have that ESG you know positive aura around it so it, it's an it's an impact in targeting it's an impact in valuations and if you can do it right it's an impact in value creation as well so uh, i think it's worth kind of putting that on your radar screen if it's not something that you've been thinking about before no that's i think that's an important topic and and I think maybe we'd carve out another time to chat about that, Tom. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Listen, Sean, it was, uh, it was my pleasure being here today. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I, I enjoyed the chat and uh, hopefully we get the chance to do this again sometime soon. Yes. And, and ho- hopefully we can do it in person one of these days. So <laughs> that would be lovely. Thank you everyone for, for listening. Okay, great. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to Deal Lab a podcast by Midaxo, the complete software suite for M&A and corporate development. If you like what you heard, please support us by subscribing and leaving us a review. You can continue the conversation and look for updates by following Midaxo on LinkedIn or email us at deallab at See you next time.